I'm really pleased um, that uh, Adrian was able to choose a whole batch of songs that really just displayed really what grace is all about. And so in many ways, a lot of what I uh, could say is, is said in those songs. But what I want to do is look at grace in four different aspects, really. Firstly, I want to look at why is grace so important? Why is it so essential? Then what is grace? Then what exactly has grace achieved? In what sense is grace victorious? And then how do we actually get hold of, how do we receive this grace? And in a way, I want to pick up from where Robert Bushby uh, was last Sunday. I'm not switched on. People always say I'm not switched on whether I've got this on or not, but that's, that's another matter. Um, right, um, so I don't know if you heard what I said before. If not, I'm sorry. But um, yeah, I want to pick up really from where Robert Bushby um, was last, one, last week. Uh, he was, um, I wasn't here, but I listened to the tape. And he gave a very clear presentation of the gospel and the fact that Jesus came primarily to save us from our sins. He came for all sorts of other reasons, but fundamentally, that was the reason. And this salvation is all to do with grace. But he laid the foundation that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He came to redeem sinners. And I just want to think about that a bit because... In order to understand something of the greatness of grace, it's necessary to perhaps understand something of where we were and where God is before grace comes into the picture, if you like. Because Robert laid the foundation quite clearly last week that we are all sinners, and he established that quite clearly. But what does that mean in practice in terms of our relationship to God? Um, In Romans 3... We read that passage where it says, For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's no difference. It applies to all of us. And what makes sin so serious is that it's an offence against such a worthy and such a glorious God. So even small sins that we might regard as insignificant are committed against this vast God. And so it's in that context that God looks at sins. We tend to look at them very much on a sort of petty level sometimes. But as far as God is concerned, he's looking at it from a totally different perspective. And we're falling short of God's glory. And some of the the words that are used in this passage in Romans are words like this, that we are powerless, we are ungodly, we are sinners, we are God's enemies, We're condemned by our sin. And in Christianity Explored, which is really where this series is running sort of parallel with, uh, the passage they look at particularly there is Ephesians 2, where we are told that without exception, all of us either were or are spiritually dead and controlled by our sinful nature. So this is mankind. This is uh, Luther, which I haven't read, but Luther wrote a book called The Bondage of the Will. And he established in that, in that book just how bound up man is in sin and just how desperate his situation is. And sometimes people say, well, that's just sort of Paul and Luther. Jesus doesn't say that sort of thing. And I just want to read quickly uh, three passages from John's Gospel where Jesus is actually talking to his disciples. And it's important to remember that. This isn't Jesus talking to the Pharisees. This is Jesus 
talking to disciples. Not the twelve specifically, but the wider group of disciples. And in John chapter 2, he says this at the end. Now, while he was in Jerusalem uh, at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He didn't need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in man. And that's his first comment. And his second comment in John chapter 6, again talking to his disciples, he says this. From this time on, many of Jesus' disciples turned back and no longer followed him. He'd been talking about Jesus being the bread of life and how we need to feed on that bread of life if we're to live. And they began to realise some of the implications of that, and so they turned their back on him, because he wasn't the sort of Jesus that they really thought he was. When they first started following him, they thought he was this sort of Jesus. But when they began to realise who he actually was, they turned back. And Jesus said, you don't want to leave me too, to the twelve. Simon said to him, Lord, where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus said, have I, have I not chosen uh, the, the twelve of you, yet one of you is a devil? But um, the bit I meant to read, which I have not read, is, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about him, Jesus said, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who don't believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which would not believe and who would betray him. And he went on to say, that's why I told you, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. I want you to remember that. So Jesus' first comment was that he wouldn't um, commit himself to men because he knew what was in men. And then he goes on to say, men cannot come to God unless the Father draws them. And then in chapter 8, again talking to his disciples if I can get the right verses this time. Jesus said, they, they, were, they were having an argument about who their father was, whether their father was really Abraham or not. And God says to them, if God were your father, you'd love me, for I am from God. I haven't, I haven't come down from my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. And Jesus makes it quite clear that sin is not something that's insignificant or we play around with. Because at the back of it is Satan. At the back of it is an evil nature that controls us and binds us. And when we come to, to talk to people in the context of Christianity Explored, we need to understand that people are not, in a sense, neutral in this situation. It's not a case of us talking to them and being able to convince them, yes, you should become a Christian, and they can just sort of academically make that decision. We need to understand that these people are bound by sin, and they are bound by an enemy who is determined that they are not going to see God. So the first side of the, the, the problem that we have is this. We have mankind who are bound in sin, 
and who don't want to have anything to do with God. God describes them as enemies and he describes them as sinners. The other side of the problem is this, God's own nature. And I will come on to grace in a minute, but it's important that we understand this. Because God's eternal nature is such that he cannot have anything to do with sin. There was a a very famous guy, I can't remember his name, I read it ages ago. Um, He was a French guy who um, was a guy who lived a very sort of debauched life. And at the end of it, he said he wasn't worried. Because it's God's job to forgive sin. And therefore, I haven't got a problem. That's what God does. Well, unfortunately, that's not what God does at all. God does not forgive sin. God cannot forgive sin. Because God is a just God. He is a holy God. And he is, he finds sin so offensive that, according to Habakkuk, he can't even, bother, he can't even bear to look upon it. And so we've got a situation where we've got mankind who doesn't want to know God and God who can't have anything to do with mankind. And that's the dilemma. And that's where grace comes in. Because God decided he was going to do something about it. He realised that man couldn't do anything about it, but he would. And that's where grace comes in. And we find in chapter, uh, chapter 3 of Romans, in verse 24, that we are justified freely by his grace. In John 15, um, when Jesus is talking about people, he says, they hated me without a cause. And that's exactly the same word that Paul uses here when he says we're free <coughs> We're justified freely by grace. There's absolutely no cause, no reason at all, why God should set his love on any of us. But God does. It's God's unmerited favour. I just want to read a passage uh, from a guy called Charles Swindle who wrote a book called The Grace Awakening. And he says this, To show grace is to extend favour or kindness to one who doesn't deserve it. To show grace is to extend favour or kindness to one who doesn't deserve it. Receiving God's acceptance by grace always stands in sharp contrast to earning it on the basis of works. Every time the thought of grace appears, there's the idea of it being undeserved. In no way is the recipient getting what he or she deserves. Favour is being extended. It is simply out of the goodness of the heart of the giver. So grace is God giving sinners something they don't deserve because of his love and compassion. So we've got a situation where mankind doesn't want anything to do with God, but God says, I'm going to deal with the situation. They don't deserve it, but out of my great love and mercy and compassion, I am going to do something about it. So what does he do? How does he actually achieve this? If we look at those passages in Romans, we find that, first of all, God's grace reveals God's righteousness and justice. But it does it in such a way that that righteousness and justice are no longer condemning us, but they're able to be used to save us. And it reveals the length that God was prepared to go to to save sinners. It reveals the cost that God was prepared to pay for people who totally don't deserve it. All of us totally don't deserve it. And yet God's grace is such that he is prepared to put his own son on a cross. And that's the extent of God's grace. It's not just that God did something nice. It's that God 
despite all that we are and despite all that we do to him, is prepared to put his own son on a cross for each one of us. It says that Jesus was a propitiation. He was, an, he was made an atonement. He was actually placed, if you like, on the altar and his blood was poured out for you and for me. This is the Son of God, his blood being poured out for you and for me. What does that mean to you? How do you respond to that? How do you actually respond to that truth? Does it excite you? Does it bore you? Does it, what does it do to you? How does that truth impinge upon you? That God put his son on a cross in your place and that you totally undeserved it. It was all because of God's love, all because of God's grace. And that's the beginning of it. It reveals God's great forbearance, his great love for us. But then in that package, what do we get? We get peace with God. Do you know peace with God? It's no good having these benefits if we don't know them and if we don't experience them. Do you know anything about the peace of God in your life? He uses the word access. And access is it's a picture of somebody taking somebody by the hand and introducing them in the context in which it was originally used in the Greek. It, it, it was taking someone by the hand and actually bringing them right into the presence of royalty. And so this grace brings us right into the presence of royalty. It brings us right into the presence of Almighty God. And the question is for you, does it bring you right into the presence of Almighty God? Or is it words that we say on a Sunday and songs that we sing? Because that's the object of it all, is to bring us into God's presence. Grace is only grace if it actually brings us into God's presence, if it actually does something in our lives, if it changes us. It tells us that we stand. We stand in grace. We've got total security in God. Have you got total security in God? Or is it words? We need to ask ourselves, we need to search ourselves, are these things true? We rejoice in hope. Do we rejoice in hope? Or is it some vague thing that we perhaps think about? And then it says we rejoice in sufferings. Now that's a hard one. And I don't think what he's saying here is that we rejoice because we've got sufferings. But Jesus said before, didn't he? I've told you these things so, you, so that in me you have, may, may have peace. In the world you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. So it's not stoicism or unreality, and it certainly isn't funny to be in, in persecution and, or, or, or in suffering. But Jesus says, you can cast all your cares upon me. I can, deal, I, I can redeem that suffering. I can do something with it. It doesn't make it easy to go through it, but it does mean that underneath we know there are those everlasting arms. We know that we're able to rejoice in suffering because Christ is the Lord and he can deal with the outcome of that suffering. It doesn't make it easy when we're going through it, but underneath we know that God is there carrying us through. And that's all part of grace, the grace of God dealing with us in that way. And then we find that we've got God's love 
poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And again, is this words or is it real? Do we know God's love poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit? We receive the Spirit of life, God's Holy Spirit, Christ in me. And this all happens while we're still sinners. Once we become Christians, we don't suddenly sort of have all our sins dealt with, all our problems dealt with, all the rest of it. But God's grace is working in these things. And so we have sonship. And again, do you know, do you know that you are the son of God or the daughter of God, however you want to place it? Do you know that you have that relationship with Father? Have you got the spirit of Abba, Father? Because this is all God's grace. Nothing we deserve. Nothing we can sort of build up or work up. This is God coming in power and saying, I am your Father. I love you. Do we know these things? Are they experienced or are they stuff that we sort of know? Peter tells us that we've got his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. We have his great and precious, very precious promises. He tells us that we participate in the divine nature. Imagine that. God is promising that you will participate, that you do participate in the divine nature. That Christ is actually dwelling within you. That you have this relationship with Father. And it's as close as a brother or a sister. Are these things real? Because we, know, we need to make sure they are. Do we know eternal life? Do we know that we are reconciled with God? This is what grace is all about. It's far bigger than, than you could hope to deal with in 20 minutes. And there's a book that Mike and Ron have recommended in, in Good News um, by Yancey. And there's also the book that I mentioned by Swindle, which are both very good books on grace. And they cover it in much greater detail. But do we know the reality of it? Do we know that God loves us? Do we know that despite all that we are and all that we do, God has forgiveness? It's all to do with relationship. It's not to do with knowledge. Obviously, knowledge is important, but it's to do with relationship. It's to do with, do I know God's grace? Am I living in God's grace? Am I rejoicing in God's grace? When we sing those songs, was it songs that are exciting and happy? Or are they, yeah, great, this is what God has done in me. This is what I know. This is what excites me. This is what is glorious. This is the God of grace that I worship. God in us and we in him. Do we know these things? And then I guess the last question is this. If, if, I, if that black picture I painted right at the beginning of man in sin is true, and I believe it is, um, how can God respond? How, how can man respond? And the glorious thing about the gospel is that it contains power. So that when we're talking to people, when we're presenting the gospel, if we're really doing it, then the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's not just a word, just not an academic argument. It's the word of God which comes with power. Paul says, doesn't he, our word came to you not with words, um, but it came in demonstration of the Spirit's power. And so we can have confidence that if we bring people to things like Christianity Explored, and if we're really praying about it, then God's word will have effect.
because it is God's word and it is God's gospel and God's gospel has power. Just an, an interesting um, illustration, which I, I think is a good parable of the, of the gospel, is the story of Lazarus. Do you remember Lazarus? He's dead and he's in the tomb. And Jesus comes along and Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes out of the tomb. But the interesting thing is that when Lazarus comes out, he didn't walk out because he was totally bound from head to foot. He came forth. But when he came forth alive, Jesus then said, loose him and let him go. And that is what happens in the, in the, when we present the gospel. God provides the life. We provide the loosing and the releasing. And if God isn't working, then nothing's going to happen. But if God is working, then we can have that certainty of knowing that Lazarus is going to come forth. And when we present the gospel, we can have that certainty of knowing that God is going to work. Jesus, when he was speaking to the rich young ruler, um, was talking about rich people. And he said this, he said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples said, well then, who on earth can be saved? If it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And Jesus said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And one last question. Is belief enough? And the answer is both yes and no. Because if you remember John's Gospel, right at the beginning, there were all of these disciples who were following Jesus. And vast numbers of them deserted him and turned away. It wasn't just the odd one or two. It was large numbers. And so it's not, imp- it's not just important that we believe in Jesus... It's important what we believe in Jesus. And is our relationship with Jesus based on some sort of verbal commitment that doesn't affect our lives? Because if so, it's not faith. And it's faith that we have to express. We make, if you like, a sort of covenant with Jesus. We actually come to Jesus. It's, it, it includes a decision, but it's more than a decision. It's a decision and a relationship. And we have to make sure that we're not basing our, our, our relationship with Jesus on something that's false. Have we got that relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you know him? Have you really committed yourself to him as your only Lord and Saviour? Paul says, if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. So there's both belief and there's heart faith. There's, there's the two things, and they are both necessary. So the question for you, really, and for me, really, is, am I sure? Do I know that I'm in, I'm in this grace, that I'm part of this, this great relationship with God, that I really am his son, that he really is my father, that it's not something that I just sort of know about. It's something that I really experience and understand and rejoicing. So the grace of God, the grace of God comes to sinners. The grace of God releases sinners. And the grace of God empowers us to live 
effective lives as children of God. And do you know that grace in your life?